0: Gentlemen,
1: can I please have your attention? Can you dig
0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come check out The Dispatch at TheDispatch.com to find all the dispatchy type dispatch things. Oh, and before I continue, I should also note that the dispatch is now offering you a chance to experience a full membership. That's full membership. You get to see all the stuff behind the paywall, the lock and key, um, the mysterious closet of mystery for the next 30 days, risk-free, no risk. That's 30 days of full access to the dispatch. We hope that with the election in full swing. And so much information chaos out there, the dispatch can help you make sense of what's really important and worth your time, which includes, by the way, the Wednesday G-File, or as some of us call it, that Mitvach Epistle. During this 30-day trial, you'll have access to member-only editions of all our dispatch newsletters, and you'll be able to join our members-only dispatch live virtual gathering. It's our sincere hope that you'll find Dispatch membership to be valuable and something worth sticking with after the 30-day trial. If you don't, you just cancel at any time. So to take advantage of this offer, go to thedispatch.com 30 days free. That's thedispatch.com forward slash 30, the number 30, days free. Um, I would say we thank the dispatch for sponsoring today's episode of the Remnant, but that would be weird. Um, today's episode is brought to you by um, our friends at ExpressVPN and at Gabby. More about them in a little bit. So I'm very excited today to have a repeat uh, uh, guest on the Remnant. He's he's I mean, if if he weren't as uh, Uh, palpably uncomfortable with compliments as I am. I would talk about, I would, I would shower praise upon him as, as one of the last, uh, role models I've got in my line of work. Um, but I will just say he's, he's a mensch and a good man and, uh, and a, a, a Titan in, um, our very small civilization that we're in these days. <laughs> and I'm talking about, uh, my friend, Andy Ferguson, Andy, welcome back to the remnant.
1: Thank you so much for having me, uh, Jonah. And I really, I don't want to inhibit your desire to lavish me with praise. So, <laughs> you know, if it, it, you know, if it's something you feel compelled to do, you just go right ahead.
0: Okay. Well, you know, you know, I, we'll, 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 skip some bigfoot erotica stuff for a second and we'll skip the bod wordwood stuff for a second and we'll go uh, we'll use that as the jumping off point um so i can explain to people a little bit about why you i i i am inclined to shower you with praise is that you've been doing this for a while you're a little older than me but still you know in the mix and you're at i should say you're at the atlantic what is your title now staff writer staff writer at the atlantic long time uh Eminence Grease of the late weekly standard. Um, and of all of the writers I know of, at least in sort of my end of the pond, as it were, um, you've managed to spend, to, to do something close to what I try to do, right. Which is sort of be smart, but also entertain the reader, um, and not get caught up in BS and all of the rest. And you've probably managed as well or better than almost anybody else I can think of, of maintaining your, I, I hate doing this after-school special kind of conversation, but maintaining your integrity in all of this. And, um, you're definitely, you know, uh, ideological and on one side of an argument like I am. Uh, but you have a long history of just sort of calling BS on your own side and on and, and, and poking at, at some, sacred cows until they make some painful loaming sounds. Um and I'm just sort of kind of wondering, and that's sort of, and and you're just very good at it. So my like, I guess the first question I got is how have you managed to avoid the seductive being seduced into the various pitfalls that uh happens to so many forget right wing pundits, just pundits
1: uh well I'm not uh among my uh many many other defects i'm not very self reflective so it's <laughs> it's hard for me to answer that one thing that i noticed early on uh when i, I started writing um at the american spectator back in the mid 1980s i got hired there by bob tyrell the founding editor and um uh it was it was a different sort of magazine in those days it was on paper for one thing it was monthly And it was sort of a right-wing New York review of books. It was very eclectic, had a really great range of subjects, lots of humor, um, very stylishly put together and everything. But it had this definite um, uh, kind of ideological point of view uh, and that I broadly shared, I think, at the time. I was in my late 20s or something. But I found that what I really, really enjoyed doing was poking my own side, and Mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in a physical sense. I'm speaking figuratively, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it it uh, you know it we it I don't know. There's a perversion in it, you know. It kind of satisfied some kind of impulse to, you know, I don't know, take a poke at uh, Grover Norquist or some other person who is supposed to be, if you were a right wing journalist, was supposed to be beyond criticism who was an ally you know you were on the team and he was on the team um and you know that, that just never appealed to me so the more i could get away with and bob tyrrell and vladi plushinsky who were the two editors um had no problem with me doing that at all they even kind of encouraged it um so after 30 years of doing that um it's just kind of a habit uh but that doesn't mean I don't, you know, because I am a, I'm a conservative person. My views about politics in general are conservative and I get a lot of satisfaction out of, um, making fun of people, not on my team too. Um, but it's just, it's just kind of a dispositional thing that, that, um, that I couldn't really escape even if I wanted to.
0: So, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny you bring this up. So, um, you know, full disclosure for listeners who couldn't figure this out, you're very close to Steve Hayes and, you know, we've known each other for a very long time and, um, uh, and you've been supportive of what Steve and I are trying to do with the dispatch and all that. Um, but it, it was weird when we, when Steve and I were launching the dispatch, um, and we were trying to refine our arguments about what we were trying to do and what we were about and all that kind of stuff. It was really weird. I had basically locked up in a box in my head, my admiration for um, the New Republic of the late '80s and early '90s. Yeah, um, and I had to sort of take the box out and say, "Oh my gosh, this is sort of—it's not exact, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's sort of what we were, what we're trying to do here, which is that the New Republic um, back in its what I would call it's glory days. Um, uh, you knew they were liberal, even though they had occasionally people who were, were not writing for it or working for it, but you knew they were liberal, but you also knew that they were willing to sort of call BS on their own side. And, um, and that with a few exceptions, I think we could probably throw, you know, throw overboard. Um, you know, they, they took arguments seriously, but not necessarily themselves too seriously. Yeah, And I mean, the American spectator was, was that at another level in a lot of ways. Um, but that's sort of what, you know, part of what we wanted to do with the dispatch is have this, you know, be very clear that we're conservative, um, or at least Steve and I are conservative and that's where we come from. Um, but that uh, we're not part of a team in the sense of this merger of the conservative movement and the Republican party and sort of right-wing media that we have seen so much of in recent years. And, um, you know, when you got your start, was it just assumed that conservatives were supposed to be sort of carrying water for the GOP?
1: Oh yeah. And it's, and it's, um, you know, it stayed that way I think in, in certain elements of conservative journalism uh you know in opinion journalism basically um but you know if you were at national review for example in 1986 uh you didn't criticize reagan reagan was ours guy uh, national review had gone a long way towards uh, getting reagan to the position where he could plausibly run for president um where and you know Bob Terrell wasn't crazy about criticizing Reagan either. He he um, knew Reagan and had had known him and and uh, felt close to him. Uh, but I had no problem uh, criticizing Reagan. And then I remember when Iran Contra happened in '87, uh, Terrell was quite happy to throw bricks at Reagan um, for all the various excesses that were exposed by that. Uh, so there there was always a strain in conservative opinion journalism uh, that, that I say, you know, sort of partook of this perversion, this kind of willingness to, to, to go after your own side. There were other parts of right-wing opinion journalism that absolutely were not that way. I mean, you, were, you carried water for Reagan, you carried water for Ed Meese, you carried water for whoever you had to, um, to, to advance the cause. I never thought I was part of a cause, really. I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> right. And I was, you know, I happened to be a conservative guy unlike many, many, many people who want to be writers and journalists. Um, so that's all, all it was with that. And then I remember when we put together the the uh, Weekly Standard, John Podhoritz and Bill Kristol were talking about who to hire. John's great insight was Um, You hire writers first, Mm -hmm. and then the politics comes second, the political point of view. So that's how we ended up with a staff. I mean, you look back on it, it's it's really quite amazing. You know, Chris Caldwell, David Brooks, Matt Labash, Tucker Carlson. I mean, it was really uh, Charles Krauthammer. It was really quite an extraordinary group of people. There and it was a key to the success of the magazine as the years went on. Is that that Pod Hortz and Crystal had concentrated on on that kind of hire? They wanted somebody who wanted to be a writer, and then somebody who wanted to be a writer who wanted to write about politics, and then thirdly, somebody who wanted to be a writer who wanted to write about politics from a particular point of view, which was broadly labeled conservative. Um, so, you know, that those kinds of people have always been out there in opinion journalism. And I think you mentioned in the New Republic from the 80s, which was a, a tremendous magazine. Um, and I think it had the same kind of concentration, that that the, the writing was first, and then the, the political point of view was slightly secondary to that. So I've always thought, because I,
0: you know, I watched the formation of the standard from afar uh, or or from close up, I should say, because I was literally on the 12th floor of the same building. Well, we kept um, trying to
1: hire you too. So (laughs)
0: Um, that was later, not in the beginning. I was too insignificant when you guys first started. And, um, uh, the, um, but it always struck me that in some ways, the weekly standard was founded as in, in, in part as new Republic envy. (laughs) You know yeah. <laughs> it was you know bill had been and 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 pod later you know had been in the in republican white houses and the way the new republic sort of drove the conversation often in, in washington from a liberal perspective it just sort of seemed like this was the idea for the weekly standard was to have our version of that um and maybe that's unfair to pod and and bill and to fred barnes and all that but it, it you know Fred Barnes, Fred was a New Republic guy. You had written a lot for the New Republic back then. Um, and, um, and Krauthammer obviously had been a New Republic guy. And it just sort of had a bit, a
1: bit of that feel to me, but maybe I'm. Oh no, God. I th- I think that's right. And it was, um, you know, the thing about that old New Republic era, uh, the mid eighties to the early nineties was it had a lot of people in motion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Krauthammer was moving rightward. Uh, Marty Peretz, the guy who owned the magazine and was editor in chief, um, was kind of moving rightward. They had people who were solidly on the left, like um, Jeff Morley, um, Rick Hertzberg. Uh, you know, people who weren't going anywhere, and they were sort of the anchor of the magazine and its identity as a as a liberal magazine. But but we wanted to. Have you know capture a little bit of that spirit of uh, moving around and 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 so when you opened up the magazine, there were going to be surprises. Yeah. Um, there was no, you know, there was a strong sense that we had a point of view uh, that we wanted the Gingrich Republicans to succeed because uh, this is ninety five, ninety six. Um, but uh, we wanted the reader to be on his toes you know and and and, uh keep um keep alert to what we were going to say or not say or you know defy the expectations of readers and especially especially defy the expectations of the political class because you know that's really where the magazine resided and what it was aimed at so when we would run pieces um critical of bob dole (laughs) who was running (laughs) one of the lamest presidential political campaigns in, in history, um, almost as lame as the previous uh, Republican presidential campaign in 1992, which I was a part of, George H.W. Bush. Um, you know, people were like, we, we get reactions like, whose side are they on? Wait a minute, you're not supposed to go after Dole, you're supposed to go after Clinton. Well, we right. went after Clinton a lot, uh, but Dole deserved what he got and, and readers deserved our honest appraisal of what was going on uh, with this guy. And so it was sort of part of the compact of the magazine was that we wouldn't, we wouldn't BS people and, and, uh, and just to curry favor.
0: So it's funny. Like I just participated in some audio documentary thing for Fox about the 1996 campaign. And I hadn't thought about, you know, Prior to you were mentioning Bob Dole, that was the only other time in the last, say, ten years, I've committed much mental energy to Bob Dole, and I go back and forth about it. When you say that he he had it coming, in one sense, absolutely true, right? Um, you know, but there was a certain open cynicism, sort of a dark nihilism. <laughs> <to> Bob Dole <laughs> that I kind of I kind of nostalgic for these days because first of all it was like you know when he said to the RNC or whoever it was look I'll be your Ronald Reagan if that's what you want me want me to be you know it's that kind of total dispassionate contempt for actual conviction <laughs> that, you know um, I I kind of miss him some well, you
1: know he and he famously said that he he had no plans to read the Republican platform um, right. Right. And, you know, generally speaking, I mean, I definitely see the appeal of that, especially as I've gotten older. Um, the thing is that, that that Dole was that way only in one direction. You know, uh, he would say, okay, okay, Reagan, I can do that stuff. He was kind of disdainful of Reagan, had always been disdainful of Reagan. He detested pro-lifers. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he could, you know, say, okay, I'll be pro-life if you want me to be, you know, because he just didn't care. There were other things that he cared about. One was this kind of institutional uh, stability that that he was very loyal to. And as I say, the workings of the political class, the establishment, as you'd say, I guess, in Washington. So it, it kind of, the, the cynicism kind of cloaked something that was, in fact, quite establishmentarian and and, and not cynical at all the other thing is that i'd say about that and our treatment of dole back then was um i should say my treatment i was the one who was really going after the poor (laughs) old guy um not everybody at the magazine was but you know when you're younger you you really prize ideological energy and Mm -hmm. you know that kind of entrepreneurial zeal of advancing ideas and all that kind of stuff and that that's why so many people were taken in by Gingrich, um, because he was just bristling with all this stuff. You know, you couldn't even stop to realize how daft half of it was. You know, but um, uh, that kind of appeal um, was was really important to people then, and I'm referring to myself as being a younger person then. Uh, that now I look back on, and I think, well, you know, it's Doles prizing of stability and kind of establishmentarian forms um is much more appealing to me now than the kind of frenetic uh ideological energy that the gingrich people were giving off back in those days um so yeah i see i see both sides of that
0: um so i asked on on twitter your fear. oh oh i should just one last thing before we go we depart for Greener Vistas. Um, uh, despite all of our praise and hazanas to the New Republic, I think listeners should at least know that one of the most um, vicious and devastating uh, critiques of what the New Republic eventually became um, in the mid-90s or early mid-90s was uh, written by you, Um, for the Washingtonian. And the thing that me and my friends really always loved was, uh, and I'm going to butcher it, but it was something along the lines of, for the author ID at the bottom um, of the piece was, uh, Andrew Ferguson, a Washington writer, has written many times for the New Republic. He does not anticipate doing so ever again. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Something like that.
1: I I think it was Andrew Ferguson, a staff writer, has written for the New Republic comma, probably for the last time. Yeah. (laughs) And and I
0: always just remember some off the record, some line quote about, it's like a Greek gymnasium in there. (laughs) 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 Which has great connotations that we don't need to dwell on. (laughs) Um, So anyway, uh, uh, I asked on Twitter, uh, your favorite platform, um, questions that uh, I should ask you. And... Among those that made the cut, uh, we'll get to J-Pod stories in a little bit. Um, a lot of questions of, are we about to enter a civil war? Um, one person says, as a career journalist, what's your remedy for the current toxic media climate where neither side will legitimize the other? Um, and um, another one, has there ever been a more depressing time to be a conservative? What is your take <laughs> on the current moment? And we're going we're gonna to get to Bob Woodward and all that in a little bit, but What, what,
1: what,
0: you know, are you cutting yourself? I mean, what, what is your general attitude on the passing scene these days?
1: Well, I think, um, I don't mean to dwell on my, um, superannuated (laughs) position in life. Um, but it, it does, it does help that I'm older and, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm well into playing the back nine, as they say, uh rather than at the beginning of the game because um there's something so uh, uh alienating about this moment in which everybody seems to be alienated from each other um that it's 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 hard to um it, it it's hard to force yourself to watch it you know i mean uh that's kind of a cop out on my part, um, but it's it's it, it is by far the ugliest uh, political environment I've ever seen, and you know I I, I kind of go through my career. I, I covered the Bork hearings. I remember in '87, and I thought, man, you know they were s- distorting bork and you know who was this quite upstanding man uh in, in just the tawdriest and most intellectually um dishonest ways and i thought man it cannot get any worse than this this is you know the, the age of reagan is the most divisive i've ever seen and then of course that fall i think or that summer was the iran contra story broke and that was incredibly ugly and i remember thinking well it can't get any worse than this and then a couple of years passed and President Bush nominated Clarence Thomas. <laughs> and I, oh, Jesus, this is, this is as bad as it gets. And then six, seven years later, there was the impeachment of Bill Clinton, which was unbelievably ugly. People forget about it. This last round of impeachment was so mild by comparison to what yeah. um, the Clinton thing was. And then, of course, there was the election of 2000 and, and what happened after Election Day for whatever it was, 60 days. Um, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse, and then, of course, there was the, the Iraq war and so on and now but but this just makes it all look like it in one sense, it's a sort of a logical culmination of this long descent that seems to have kind of corresponded to my career um but uh, but also this just like all of the elements that made all of those things get uglier and uglier are just um in in the highest concentration right now. Um, and if somebody asked me for a solution to it, I'd just throw up my hands. I have no idea. I mean, maybe a, a, a third grade awakening or something, some kind of great mass religious conversion in which everybody, you know, sees the Lord and, and calms down for a bit, but I, I'm not, I'm not expecting that.
0: Yeah. I, I, I used to quote Irving Kristol all the time who said there's nothing wrong with this country that a really good and deep recession wouldn't fix. Hmm. Um, I just don't think it's true anymore. I mean, uh, like... Well, we've got a good and
1: deep recession.
0: Yeah, no, I know. We have this thing that is... I mean, there's this... The the pandemic... It's one of the damnedest things is that the pandemic is such an opportunity for the nationalists, for Trump, for the post Liberal Catholic integralists, or you know, all these people, this was their shot of finding something that is one of those great exceptions to liberal democratic theory, you know, about what the role of government should be. And they couldn't seize the opportunity. And um, it does make, you know, I used to, what was it, Eugene, I think it was Eugene McCarthy, who I don't normally quote, said, you know, this country can uh, choke on a gnat, but it can swallow tigers whole. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I still know if it can swallow tigers anymore. It's really, it's, it's kind of amazing to me. And, um, and so like, I wrote this, I think I sent you the link to it. I wrote this LA times column, uh, this week about this. I, all my life, I had a, you know, we've had a, a definition of a centrist or a moderate as, as, someone who's basically a different splitter sort of, uh, you know, a middle of the road or ideologically for want of a better word. And there were, you know, and there were other ways to think about it. Someone who just didn't like excitement or purity or thought they were independent if they treated political positions like a Chinese menu. But it does seem to me today that with the cancel culture stuff of the left and the cancel culture stuff of the right, um, there's a different kind of centrist out here, which is just simply, you can, you can be ideologically conservative or ideologically liberal, but if you, j- if, if you just don't buy into all the Flight 93 mm-hmm. stuff or the Civil War stuff or the idea that um, everybody has to agree with me, um, if, if, if you're willing to have a conversation with somebody who you disagree with without hating them, it kind of makes you a centrist in this climate because everything's yeah. so much more about emotion than it is about actual ideological positions. I mean, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I, I guess I, I disagree with to the extent that it that doesn't take us very far because the problem isn't just procedural, you know? It isn't just that we all fly off the handle uh, too quickly and we all get mad at each other. Um, And the ways in which we disagree are unpleasant. That is a huge problem, obviously. Um, But even if that were resolved and we were kind of all being nicer to each other, uh, we'd still be left with the basic antagonism, which is, I think, ideological and uh, even religious, if you wanted to put it that way, but something quite deep-seated Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a matter of how we disagree. The, 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 actual disagreements themselves are, um, very deep and polar. And, uh, so that's the kind of thing that I think even if, you know, that it's going to be hard to overcome, it would be nice if we, if we all had better etiquette, that's for certain.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with that, and I'm I'm done trying to provide solutions. <laughs> um, although, I mean, I guess that's not really true. I, I I have some solutions, but um, uh. I do think that if you're if you sincerely believe that this election, that if it doesn't go the way you want, it's the end of America, um, then there's really not much else to talk about. Right. I mean, yes, it's right. This, and there's this, um, this constant push to catastrophize everything in politics. And, um, and I think that's a big chunk of where the dumbest and most virulent forms of the cancel culture stuff come from, which is like, it's a crisis. If I don't celebrate, you know, uh, transgender arbor day with you i mean is it really is that like the end of the world um and and so when you say you know one of the things that would fix things is if we had a second great awake or not our third great awakening or i guess we'd be up to our fourth yeah i guess well. um that's what i'm worried about is that we are having a great awakening but it's more of like a great awakening, you know and it's it's well it, I, I think it's kind mean- of a pagan awakening which is uh or maybe it's, it's two a solution, two, two, you know? two
1: great awakenings going on at the same time, um, and they're they're antithetical to each other. Yeah, you know, I, I'm two minds about this. You know, I, I was ha- having this discussion with someone the other day. I remember thinking in 1992, and uh, with a lot of other people, that the election of a chronically dissembling Um, philandering baby boom draft dodger uh, over the election of an upstanding genuine war hero Mm -hmm. meaning Clinton over Bush would signal something uh, kind of rot in the country so deep that it would be hard to see how we overcame it. And I remember within the first year of the Clinton administration, Bill Bennett and Jack Kamperot saying this is the Ringing the alarm bells, this is the first, you know, self-consciously, ideologically left-wing government we've ever had in the United States. You know, everybody's in hysteria. And um, that kind of recurred then (laughs) every four years. I remember people thinking if Bush triumphed in 2000 with the Supreme Court handing him the election and stuff, something fundamental in the country was going to change. And, um, you know, 2004, this is where this trope of this is the most important election of my lifetime, which I've heard every election of my lifetime. And it's just clearly not true. And, of course, the alarms about Obama and how he was, you know, a student of I.F. Stone and um, uh, Saul Alinsky uh, meant that essentially America was going to come to an end. Um, So I, I look at that and I think, well, this is just a trope. You know, this is just something that the political people who are interested in politics use to get themselves excited and all worked up uh, because basically politics is so goddamn boring. Anyway, you need to kind of you need to kind of jazz it up by pretending that this is, you know, flight 93 or whatever. Um, Then on the other hand, sooner or later that trope is going to be true (laughs) you know i mean it actually is going to be a contest between things so fundamentally in opposition to each other two points of view two ways of handling the government and so on um and approach to public life approach to private life that it actually is going to be something that changes the character of of the country Um, in, in important ways. So I don't know, it it could go either way. It might be the end of the world. It might be just one more blip on our, uh, journey eventually to the end of the world.
0: Yeah. But so I I guess one of the things that I, and this is what I was getting at at the beginning, one of the things I like about the Ferguson model, for want of a better term, is that, um, and this is you know look this is sort of a midlife lesson for me i mean the trump the 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 trump conversion the trumpification of the GOP and the right um was a eye opener uh, on every level and at every scale for me mm. and um and until then I never really internalized the idea that there are some people who at the end of the day have the exact same job description that I do but on paper, but the way they see it is, at the end of the day, they're a team guy first. Yeah, they're a party guy first, and um, they're perfectly fine to have multiple identities in their professional life as an author, as a speaker, as a pundit, whatever. But if 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 they got to narrow it down to one, they're going to circle around. They're circle the wagons around the the party or the team, and that that tendency in some people is really, really shocked me. And, and it it gets at this thing where people constantly daily are saying, well, who are you going to vote for? As if who I vote for has this causal effect on what I'm going to write or say. Yeah. You know, my guess is you probably would have voted for Bob Dole in 1996. It didn't stop you from criticizing Bob Dole. Right. Um, like, I don't think I'm going to vote for, I'm not going to vote for Biden because I live in DC. My vote doesn't matter here. So why not vote for somebody who at least sends the kind of message about who I want, but I don't, I just don't care that much about how I'm going to vote. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but I meet people all the time who think it is like the Rosetta stone. And if you're going to vote for somebody, that means you have to write column after column, defending the person you're going to vote for as if the job to be a conservative journalist is to be a party apparatchik by proxy. And I'm just stunned by how many people believe that. And the number of people who don't believe that is now shrinking (laughs) constantly. And you're, you are now like it or not, back nine or not, you're like the elder statesman of these people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, 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 let me say that I do understand that point of view. Um, to this extent, people, it's good for people to think of themselves as citizens first. Mm-hmm. And um, as a citizen, you want what's best for your country. And there comes a point when doing journalism as it's been classically understood, at least you know in post-war America, which is to, um, I guess, afflict the comfortable or comfort the afflicted, um, I hate that expression. Yeah, no, I know. No. It's just, it, I'm so sorry I said it. Um, okay, let me recover now for a minute for having said that those words come out of my mouth. Okay, anyway, <laughs> now I'm good. Um, but anyway, it, I should say to be in opposition as a journalist comes in conflict with your kind of obligations as a, as a good citizen. And, um, you know, it, it's just, I I I saw this in you know when you you read through history where um you know journalists used to say they were in the tank and you know would even do things like uh, I don't know actually contemporary examples of this people who are journalists but who will help a candidate write a speech for example mm-hmm. um, they're just saying that that they they're refusing to accept the opposition that the obligations of good citizenship and pursuing the good of the country are um, over against their obligations as a journalist. And I understand that. I, I've ne- I don't operate that way, and I've never quite felt comfortable operating that way. But I do, you know, I, I get the idea of people think that, that they don't want their obligations as a journalist to to conflict with what they think the common good is.
0: Yeah, I, I, so I mean, correct me if I'm. What, what do you think about this? Because I think I think you're right. You know, I don't know that I draw the lines perfectly, and and certainly I'm drawing the lines a lot more strictly now than I was ten years ago. In part because of the various epiphanies that the, the Trump moment has imposed upon me. But um, it seems to me, you know, a a good rule of thumb is, however you decide de, calculate these trade offs. Between citizenship and journalism, a good rule of thumb is don't lie. Yeah, right. Right? I mean, like, I think most journalistic ethics stuff is BS. Um, it's basically guild stuff to protect, you know, it's a featherbed and protect, uh, you know, a, a certain industry and in a certain sort of status class, you know, thumbsuckery racket. Um, but a good, good sort of bedrock thing about, Journalistic ethics is whether you're an opinion journalist or a reporter, do not say or write things that you do not believe to be true. And um, the number of people who flat out lie in the Trump era uh, that I didn't think were those kinds of journalists or those kinds of public intellectuals has has pushed me much more in the Mencken direction on all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm much more cynical, much more, you know, it's a weird myth of cynicism and idealism in that on the one hand, I guess people say I'm become much more sanctimonious and (laughs) (laughs) self-righteous. And on the other hand, I, uh, but what I'm sanctimonious and self-righteous about is so much smaller. It's like the Island of my sanctimony has shrunk to like these little things like don't lie, you know, don't say someone with bad character has good character, that kind of thing. Where it used to be, basically, I could be sanctimonious about the vast warp and
1: woof of right wing <laughs> right wingery, and no, it didn't bother anybody because they agreed with me. Right, right. You're you're, depend- you're defending the last atoll in the Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> but you know, you know, one of the things that I think really helps in in all of this is the ability. Um, to have good friends and people that you admire, who whose judgment you can still trust, and that's harder and harder to do. Another thing that's really, really crucially important is to be able to be anonymous on the internet, and that's why I want to talk about ExpressVPN. So I hinted at this earlier about uh, uh, Bigfoot erotica and Andy, and and the only reason I bring it up and is not that Andy has any uh, particular knowledge about Bigfoot erotica. It's just that the last time he was on here. I mentioned Bigfoot erotica as just proof that there's a weird and diverse market out there for weird and diverse stuff. And somehow it took on a life of its own and I became known as a Bigfoot erotica guy. And I I will admit I leaned into it a little bit and did some reading um, on a subsequent podcast from some of the leading uh, works of Bigfoot erotica fiction. And most of it is fiction, I have to tell you. But if you want to find some of that stuff on your own and you don't want anyone to know that you're looking for it, one great thing to use is ExpressVPN. Um, I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why... Even when you're at home, you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your Internet from Verizon or Comcast um, or any of the other ISPs out there. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your Internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100%, not 99%, 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, you don't even realize you have ExpressVPN on. It just runs seamlessly in the background, and it is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you are protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV, so there's no excuse for you not to be using it. So, today, protect your online activity with the VPN rated number 1 by Cnet and Wired. Visit this exclusive link of expressvpn.com/remnant and you can get an extra 3 months free on a 1 year package. That's expressvpn.com/remnant. E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash remnant. Okay, so let's change gears and let's do this. You know, you can tell I'm just totally pandering to uh, the market. Um, Now that we're about 35, 40 minutes in, let's talk about current events. Um, What do you make of the Bob Woodward hootenanny? Today's the day after that story broke. Um, um, I seem to recall you're not a huge fan of the woodward racket but i don't want to put words in your mouth Um, i I love it
1: i love it and i I, what's astonishing to me is the longevity of this guy we are now i guess all the president's men came out in 1973 it was woodward's first book that he wrote with carl bernstein that's almost 50 years of rocking the capital of the free world back on its heels routinely like once every eighteen months, I mean, it is it, it is a career. I mean, forget just journalism; it's a career, almost. You can't find one like it in show business or <laughs> sports. You know, I mean, the guy is is um, a phenomenon. That's that's such a trite phrase, but I, I don't know how to even describe what he does. Um, now, I think what he does is is kind of tawdry and absurd in in many instances um but you just before you say anything else about him you just have to just stand back in awe of of a career like this um yeah i I will admit i was one of those
0: guys who by up until mark felt actually outed himself or was outed as deep throat what was that 10 years ago Yeah, I was moving to the position that he was a composite and that Deep Throat didn't exist. Um, And and the fact that he actually ended up existing, um, even though I think they pinned some things on a dead man that um, he didn't have any ability to to refute, uh, made me think, okay, he actually has squared away his
1: sourcing stuff. Um, Yeah, I, I, I... I I've, I've felt that way too. There, there's a terrific book that, of course, nobody paid any attention to that came out a couple of years ago called Leaked. And I can't remember the name of the author, but a guy who's clearly a Watergate obsessive and kind of a Woodward obsessive. And he- but not James Rosen? <laughs> no. <laughs> but he, he went back and um, went through the notes that Woodward has donated to I think, at some university library and found that the um, account of uh, uh, Woodward's conversation with Deep Throat, Mark Felt, in the books is different from what's in the notes in certain kind of marginal ways. A couple of important things look to have been uh, rearranged or uh, paraphrased in, in important ways um so the you know it's always right to be suspicious of woodward's stuff um but the fact is that it it stands i mean a lot of it really really stands what, what's what i've always found objectionable to it is you know he came of age during the new journalism when mm-hmm. which is a tom wolf phrase when the idea was that, that, that you'd go beyond, you, you would do saturation reporting, which is also Wolf's phrase, and you would be able to convey news uh, in, in literary through literary devices of scene setting, character development, lots of dialogue, and that kind of thing. Um, so Woodward is still enthralled. To, the problem with new journalism was it was a great idea, but there were only like four people who could pull it off. Mm-hmm. And um we actually know one of them, Matt Labash. Uh yeah. but you know, I mean Wolf could do it, Gay Talese could do it kind of. Uh, but they're just <laughs> Joan Didion could do it. it. but it wasn't it wasn't something that was a template for people to for ordinary mortals to follow. But Woodward is still enthralled to that idea. So he 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 um cranks up this kind of melodrama machine and gets this huge amount of reporting and 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 pumps it into the machine and out comes these sort of standard morality tales of good guys and bad guys and high drama and betrayals and you know personal uplift and all this kind of crap and you just want to say you know, God bless you, Bob, you, you got all these people to tell you all this stuff. Could you just give us the transcripts and <laughs> and, and skip the scene setting, you know, forget how Colin Powell looked that day when, when he walked into the war room, you know, or to just, it's, we don't need that. Um, and, but again, his ability to get people to set, to tell him stuff is just, it's like, it's like supernatural. It's like Mesmer the magician. Um, there there's a great account of it. Uh George Stephanopoulos, who's especially earlier in his career, was just like the, the poster boy for Washington careerism, uh, you know, climbing the greasy pole, uh, started out as a hill rat, you know, working for Dick Gephardt or something, and ends up running this long shot campaign of Bill Clinton's in ninety-two. Uh he records in this wonderful memoir he wrote, uh, All Too Human, I think that's what it's called, Yeah, about getting his the first call from Bob Woodward. And he said, I had two thoughts. The first one was, oh no. And the second <laughs> was, I have arrived. <laughs> and that is exactly, that is an exact summary of how Woodward does it. He has, he has developed his own celebrity in such a way that um, that he becomes irresistible to the kinds of people who find themselves at the center of power in Washington. And, of course, if you don't give in to Bob Woodward, as a few people have discovered, Don Rumsfeld is uh, a uh, prime example, you will end up um, on the abattoir floor, uh, and you're going to wish that you had cooperated with him.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that was the other part, right? That's it's that that's the that's the stick instead of the carrot. Is that if you're not at the table with him, you're on the menu.
1: Yeah, right. Absolutely.
0: Um, all right, but so you know, I, what is your theory of the case for Donald Trump to work with him on his second book about the administration? Recall that. I mean, I, I, wrote this thing about this yesterday, you know, Trump insisted that the first book fear was a work of fiction, a bundle of lies, um, that it was, um, a complete fabrication from beginning to end. Now let's not be too cynical and assume, or let's just, let's just assume that that's how Trump responds to all negative media, and he doesn't actually believe it was full of lies. Um, oh, I'm sure he didn't read it. Of course not. Yeah, and I'm sure, and I'm sure Woodward is right that that Trump did call Jeff Sessions retarded, and you know, and all yeah, these okay. other things. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you're on record having said that it's a bunch of lies and fake, and he fabricates things, and you know that the book isn't going to be friendly to you. Why would you talk to him for the second book on tape? <laughs> uh,
1: well, I actually think this is not something peculiar to Trump. I mean, you could just say it's Trump's vanity, um, except that, that you you s- all presidents have succumbed to it, at least that I know of in, in my lifetime, except for maybe the first president, Bush. Um, uh, they all end up sitting down with him. And I I, I wrote somewhere in a long piece about Woodward, years ago that um presidents don't understand it but this is bob woodward's town and the presidents just live in it right and he is he's the guy who is first going to have a longer career than any president and he's uh going to exert uh more power of a certain kind uh for a longer period than the president and and presidents being who they are thinking that they're you know nobody can pull one over on them um think that i'm going to pull one over on bob woodward and it never works i mean it just never works um but what's astonishing is um that he um let him tape the stuff that's that's sort of because you know a lot of woodward sources will only will not be appear on tape interestingly rumsfeld was one who insisted on um on being taped and and then released the transcripts of his interview with Woodward to Woodward's detriment, actually, um, but uh, at least if he had just been taking notes, you know, Trump could say, "Oh, he didn't understand that; he misheard it." Whatever, right? But uh, you know, it's it's it is it is partly a story of Trump's unconquerable vanity.
0: Yeah, it's funny when you say it's, it's Woodward's town, um, and the president's just living in. The other, another person that used to be true was Broder. Yeah. You know, I, I, remember I was always kind of, you know, surprised at how, how much, how poorly Broder hid his hatred and contempt for Bill Clinton. And it was only when you sort of realized, okay, this is not an ideological thing. It's that Broder has this sense of decorum about his Washington and Clinton comes in and leaves just this horrible greasy stain on the bathtub and he's just mortified by it. And that was, it was nothing more or less than that. It had nothing to do with, you know, sort of partisan or political things. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people misunderstand about how, at least how the DC establishment used to work. I'm not sure that there is much of a DC establishment anymore, but,
1: um, well, people people have always tried to cast um, Woodward in ideological terms. The guy I could guarantee does not have an ideological bone in his body, aside from sort of the vague, you know, kind of soft liberalism that, as you say, of that of the Washington establishment, um, which is is in rough shape. It's true, but. Um, but you know when when he would write things in the Reagan era about Iran Contra, everybody said, "Oh, well, he's this big left winger." Uh, then he wrote this book about George H.W. Bush being masterful in the Iraq War, and then Democrats said, "Oh, he's you know converted to Republicanism." Then he trashed Clinton in a series of books, and that just solidified him as a right winger. And then he went after the next bush and then he was a liberal again it's just that's not what there it, he has two load stars one is he wants to find out a bunch of stuff that isn't his business <laughs> and two he wants to kind of preserve a certain establishmentarian stability as he sees it and, and as all of his friends would see it um so you know Trump is is in a front in every possible uh level. I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in the fact that, that I mean the thing about Trump is how little of interest there is about him behind the scenes. You know, mm-hmm. you could kind of look at um boy wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall when Dick Cheney and George W. Bush were planning the Iraq invasion, or something like that. You can, because you know that, that there was the public version and there was the private version. Um, Trump is all just splattered out there one dimensionally on the surface. I mean, there's all this talk about, oh, he, he, he said one thing in public and he's about the pandemic and something else in private. Um, well, he also had said a lot of different things about the pandemic in public too. It's not, there's not a lot there to be revealed because the guy is so compulsively, uh, uh, self-revealing himself. And, um, I mean, that's part of his narcissism as we all have been taught to say, but it's true. And I, I guess it's kind of more interesting to find out what, you know, what Dan Coates said to mike pompeo or something you know but it's sort of more interesting and and there is that kind of duplicity of a backroom story versus what's in public but that doesn't seem to be to hold true with trump because it's just there
0: yeah i think that's in part because it's actually a pretty cruel thing to say if you actually think it through but i don't think donald trump has any interior life yeah yeah, yeah. you know i mean the person you see is the person and Sure, he dissembles and he puts and he he, he lies in public. But even the lies are so obviously lies that they're not interesting to a certain extent. And he has done something amazing, which I didn't think, I literally didn't think was possible. He has made me keenly curious about Mike Pence's interior life. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, like who? Who else could have done that? I mean, like what? Like what are his? Con- I want to be a fly on the wall for his conversations with his wife about Donald Trump. You know, yeah. um, I want to know whether Mike Pence honestly thinks that he can inherit the 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 sort of UFC um, crowd that is like a big chunk of Donald Trump's base, you know, that, um, that he is supposedly prostituting himself in day in and day out to sort of be the heir apparent to Trumpism. And I, I, want to, I I would love to know how he connects those dots, like how he thinks that's going to work.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm sure he, he probably doesn't know. I'm sure he thinks about it quite a bit. Um, but you know, it's also, (laughs) I, I, I remember I learned. A valuable lesson once one of the first times I was at some dinner in Washington you know one of these ballroom kind of things and I was uh, seated at a table with um, two at the time very prominent one was a United States senator one was a governor Um, two very interesting I thought guys Um, oh, this is great we're going to be able you know even though they knew i was a journalist and stuff they seem to be um very candid and uh so they're you know the dinner goes on and everybody has some drinks and then the two guys go and sort of sit at one end of the table the 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 two up-and-coming politicians very successful and they're sitting there with their heads together and i think okay now this is the real stuff this is what <laughs> and i kind of wild my way over there and i ended up sitting next to them and was overhearing their conversation and they were talking about funding formulas for charter schools <laughs> and here i had been thinking that it was, you know they were going to be telling stories about Clinton and behind the scenes, or you know how this this one guy in New Hampshire was the guy you had to see if you really wanted to, you know, make inroads there or something. But I, I was I was I was imputing depths of character and um, even nefarious depths, I guess, to them that, that just wasn't there. And you know, it really was the case that even as politicians, they were political, and it was up and down. Up and down the levels of their their personality um, so I, I I think a lot of the premise of Woodwardism is probably wrong that that there are, are huge things going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to or that these guys have an interior life that is somehow uh, revelatory of something um, on the other hand, Trump really is unique in the sense of just not seeming to give a damn uh, about you know, revealing too much about himself, except the hair, I guess he's worried that people will think his hair and, is. and his real weight. Um, yeah, right. But, but even those things, those are not interesting.
0: I mean, they're just like, these are, these are conventional points of vanity. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Um, so it's funny you mentioned this. So I, I got into a little bit of a, it wasn't a fight or anything like that. I have a, a Twitter friend who tweeted the other day, one of these things that I just think is 180 degrees wrong about understanding, um, politics. And she said, um, uh, when it comes to politics, there are no coincidences. Mm-hmm. And the upshot of which being, you know, whether it's the deep state or the establishment or, you know, the globalist or whoever that, you know, if some news breaks that is inconvenient to one partisan group that was deliberate, you know, that everything is sort of orchestrated and complex and that people are planning, um, how to, you know, change the message and change the narrative and yada, 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 yada. You know, it's, it has this vaguely Marxist thing. Remember how Marxists always used to say it is no accident. Right. Right. And The reality is is that, you know, most of these people are just incapable of. And I want to say most of these people making it sound like it's disparaging. People are incapable of like controlling events and 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 nailing an outcome in a complicated situation a month out, you know, seamlessly. It just doesn't life doesn't work that way. And yet increasingly, that's how so much of America on the left and the right
1: think things work is that it's all conspiracy theory has has, has this person ever worked in government or high level politics because i mean i'll tell you the 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 way you disabuse yourself of that is you work in the government for a week and you know you people are generally panicked uh i mean i worked in the white house for a year and you know there is there is always a low level of panic everywhere all the time that keeps everybody slightly off balance. If somebody appears to be in control and operating in a Machiavellian fashion, he's uh, just pulling your leg, uh, or, or worse. Um, and the thing is, 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 from what I could tell, and even from the outside, reporting on this over the years, is politics is a string of accidents, you know? I mean, right. you are constantly reacting. Um, to something that you didn't think was going to happen, and you know, Bill Bennett and other people always like this say, you know, you're either on offense or you're on defense. Well, not really. <laughs> you're almost always on defense. It's good if you can make your defense look like an offense, right. um, but you know, you're you're um, it's a it's a reactive business above all, and what you're reacting to are. Accidents and incompetence, from what I can tell.
0: Yeah, I mean, and in fairness, I mean, like again, I don't think it has to be about the White House or about Congress or about politics at all. If you've ever worked in an office with more than five people in it, yeah, yeah, it's amazing how much miscommunication, ego, vanity, um, weird agendas, general incompetence—you know—these things compound upon each other in ways that create bureaucratic screw-ups and whatnot. And then you apply that to this vast sprawling thing that is the federal government. And of course, it's impossible to run a conspiracy, you know, adroitly. It just, it makes no sense to me. And, but that's, I think, one of the most fascinating things about American political, I've talked about this a bunch of times, everybody who, everybody thinks some other faction is really running the show. Yeah, right. (laughs) You know. uh, Or or even
1: knows what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've told the story before, but I went to one of those Koch brothers big donor conference things about 10 years ago, eight years ago. And, you know, technically they're supposed to be entirely off the record, but I don't think that gets me in any trouble. Um, The audience was full of the people that the New York Times literally that day was saying have a stranglehold on the Republican Party the day I got there and how they're running everything and that the Coke network really is the wizard behind the curtain, running everything. And speaker after speaker, including people on the floor during the plenary session, were saying time and time again, if we could only get the political consultants out of the way, we could finally get the stuff that we want to happen. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. after, <laughs> yeah, you know? right.
0: And for them, it was obvious that the political consultants run everything and if you ever talk to the political consultants they all like these goddamn you know big money donors they're mucking with everything they control everything everyone thinks somebody else is in charge and kind of the beauty of things is that no one is
1: yeah yeah well that you know that that goes back to the to the woodward fiction the the, the fundamental fallacy at the bottom of woodwardism um is, is that the that, that these kinds uh, this sort of chaos uh can be funneled into um nice, neat narratives. And um it's you know, you you would think, I mean maybe cynicism on Woodward's part. You think that he would have figured this out by now. Yeah. That that this is all kind of catches catch can and and, you know, happenstance and chaos and so on. Um and that the melodrama doesn't really model doesn't really apply here. Um but he keeps at it and I uh I, guess, I guess, it might be cynicism, but it's, he certainly does know how to sell books. So, yeah, he's, he's a very wealthy man. Um, uh,
0: the, so this is sort of a Fergusonish point. I, and I, maybe it's downstream of Woodwardism generally, but, um, you knew my mom, or know my mom, or, you know, uh, my mom had a contentious relationship, not romantic professional with John Dean I have inherited as a familial obligation um, a deep antipathy to <laughs> John Dean as sort of a fraud. Um, and um, I'm watching now. I mean, it's already happened with, with Scaramucci. And now I am watching very closely to see how, much, how successful uh, Michael Cohen is going to be to be turned into a John Dean figure, right? I mean, there's this weird alchemy that happens that if someone rats out an administration yep. or, or, or testifies against partisan interest, as it were, in one way or another, then all of a sudden they become heroes to the other side and, and, and are sort of even turned into honorable people. Now Scaramucci, I don't know, I think he played his cards badly and he, I know people who know him and he, May in fact be a decent guy, but Michael Cohen is a grifting.
1: Oh yeah, Yeah,
0: man and a thug. To watch like Rachel Maddow and the MSNBC crowd turn him into, you know, uh, Thomas More
1: is just wild. Yeah, yeah. You you wonder. I mean, how far could that go? Could could like Manafort have turned himself into a Rachel Maddow pinup boy? I mean, could he have if he had really turned on Trump? Um, you know, if, if they'll do it with Michael Cohen, uh, you just, you know, you, you don't know where, where you touch bottom there because, uh, that guy is a bottom feeder. He's really amazing to me, but, the, but again, you know, that's the, that's the business about the, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, just a commonplace to say now, I mean, it's just a, a part of of political life is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend that was supposed to be kind of a radical idea um right. not so long ago but but now it's just comes with the territory of course rachel maddow is going to take a thug like cohen and and turn him into prince valiant you know it's just i i saw this actually in the reaction to um jeffrey goldberg's uh piece with uh in the atlantic um, that was like yeah. six days ago, and no, oh, I'm sorry. Like a Pleistocene era. <laughs> but in the in, in the discussion of this, and this has happened a lot with Woodward, Woodward has a lot of people on the record, although it's not clear he has he has secondary sources who will tell you what um, you know Mike Pompeo says. And those people aren't on the record. It becomes very confusing if you try and trace it. But nobody brought up the the what I would have thought would be the obvious point about uh jeff's piece which is these four sources he has i have no doubt that these people told jeff exactly what he said they uh what they they said trump said but um nobody said like wait a minute isn't this kind of dishonorable (laughs) you know isn't this these guys are supposed to be military people right and and they're ratting out their commander-in-chief and refuse to say who they are, to identify themselves—that's just—that's a kind of um, squirlishness that I don't think uh, we should we should abide too readily. You know, it's it's just. But but again, it's partly the 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 political culture, partly what Woodward has trained us to do over the years, um, is that you 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 set aside those very fundamental basic ideas of how to behave honorably when it comes to uh trashing a political enemy yeah
0: yeah i mean I, i'm with you on that and that in insofar as the only excuses i've heard or justifications i've heard for why those guys remain anonymous is that they didn't want to get a lot of crap on Twitter. Yeah. And right. Trump. And, and it's like, you're willing to take enemy fire for yeah. your country, but you know, not, you know, mean tweets from Donald Trump. It's right. a weird position. Right. Um, all right. So uh, now we're on to the lightning round because I know I've kept you for a while here. Um, uh, uh, of things that people want me to ask you about. Uh, very high on the list are a desire for embarrassing stories about John Podoritz? Do you have anything for me?
1: Uh, as we used to say at the state department, I'm afraid I have nothing for you on that. Uh,
0: <laughs> See, that's a lie,
1: <laughs> uh,
0: but it's a noble lie. It's a noble lie. And it's a lie. And it's, 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 it's a lie in the context. <laughs> of if we weren't recording, you might have something for me, but you're a
1: good friend. And so you won't. You well, won't we, yeah, yeah. If we have a few drinks next time, if, if we can ever oh. get together again in, real life.
0: Yeah, no, I I would love to do that and if um, you know, and and um thankfully in the days of now that we have Uber as a possibility, it means I don't have to uh go drunk driving, which would be bad for my car, but if I did go drunk driving, one thing I would want to do is find the very best auto insurance policy I could and that's why I want to talk to you about Gabby. When you've had the same car insurance or homeowners insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying your premiums and not even thinking about it. That makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. Stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance. See about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers such as Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. That's what I did, and I found out I actually have a pretty good deal, which is another thing Gabby can give you, is peace of mind. But lots of people get something better than peace of mind. They get money. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. If they can't find you savings, they let you know so you can relax, knowing you have the best rate out there, and they'll never sell your info, so no annoying spam or robocalls. So it's totally free to check your rate, and there's no obligation. Take a few minutes right now and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. Go to gabi.com/remnant. That's g-a-b-i.com/remnant. R-e-m-n-a-n-t. Gabby.com slash remnant. We thank Gabby for sponsoring today's episode of the remnant. Okay. So in the time that we do have left uh, in all seriousness, um, do you imbibe this stuff anymore? I mean, do, do you watch Fox and MSNBC out of some sort of professional or masochistic, you know, motive, or do you just look for the things that you want to write about and, and, and tune the rest out
1: well you know that's a very um interesting question because i was just this morning um uh trying to decide whether i should subscribe to the week you know the magazine which seems to be Mm -hmm. like the last genuinely news magazine type thing uh left simply because my News consumption has gotten so sporadic, partly just because of my general level of revulsion that yeah. seems to be twenty four seven. That I said, well, if I get the week, at least there will be one day a week where I can sit down and see all the stuff that I missed because I I do seem to be missing a lot of stuff now. If there if there's a subject that I, you know, am writing on, then I you know I'll be as exhaustive as I can be on the research of it, but. My general level of hour-to-hour knowledge about the political world in particular uh, has, seems to be uh, rapidly diminishing. So I'll watch um, on TV, I watch uh, most of the Brett Baier
0: mm-hmm.
1: show, um, uh, because that, I, that strikes me as the best and certainly most balanced of all the the cable news shows and you actually get a good overview of the world i watched the first it's movie.
0: actually a news show, yeah, it's very a new show. show.
1: <laughs> and uh and you know you're not going to get a line of crap because it's it's by no means a pro-trump thing but it's also not obsessively anti-trump the way say the news hour uh has become although i still watch much of the news hour for the news summary which is usually pretty good um my actual physical newspaper reading now has been reduced just to the Wall Street Journal like I canceled the Washington Post about a year and a half ago because I just thought it was you know it was it was it's getting to be like a college paper run by the you know Cornell University young Democrats um, it's just so silly and immature in its treatment of politics um, and I read The Times online. Uh, and that's it. I, I try and stay off Twitter because I just go down some rabbit hole. I, I, I don't tweet myself, but I can go on and then- But you've been a lurker for a while, right? Uh, yes, I'm a stalker. But uh, I kind of I've cut, cut back on that a lot, partly because I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I mean, so many Twitter controversies are just controversies about Twitter, mm-hmm. or controversies about controversies on Twitter. And you, know, you can go down a rabbit hole, especially if you're like, uh, you or me, and you know a lot of these people personally. And you know, the next thing you look up from your phone or your laptop, and an hour and a half has gone by, and it's just like I'm never going to have that hour and a half again. um So I, I, I more or less avoid that. I, you know, I have to rely on the idea that if something really big happens, someone will tell me. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get an email about it, or I'll get a even a phone call. Um, So that's my act of faith.
0: Yeah, I think it's. I think this is a more generic. I mean, I have I have many of the same issues. You know, um, I watch Special Report. um, I watch Morning Joe often as a sociological Hmm. thing, although it's becoming less and less useful it used to be because scarborough was a half a click to the right or even a whole click to the right of the conventional wisdom yeah of msnbc it's sort of like you know when you i don't know my chemistry but you know when you put an activating agent in a compound and you get a reaction that was enough that you could kind of see what the actual conventional wisdom was simply by the sort of acid test of having people triggered a little bit. But, but Scarborough is now so, you know, one note about Trump that it gets, it gets kind of dull. And, and then everybody else does the same speech about Trump and it gets even duller. Um, so just as a matter of sort of figuring out where sort of con- liberal conventional wisdom is it's, it's just not useful anymore, or it's just too useful because all it is is Trump lives in their head. Um, but I find it very difficult. I can't watch the opinion shows yeah. on Fox or, and I shouldn't be saying this because I get in trouble whenever I criticize Fox, but I can't watch them for very long because I find them
1: embarrassing. Um, and oh, they terrible. not terrible. the opinion shows on the other networks either. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, you know, I'm... Um, Uh, You know, we mentioned Tucker Carlson before. Tucker is so far, in a way, more talented than anyone else who tries to do this, even at at this kind of, um, uh, you know, gas bag, uh, personality-driven shows, like Hannity was supposed, or O'Reilly was supposedly the king of them, and Rachel Maddow is incredibly gifted at it, but she's also totally uninteresting. Tucker, actually, you can see, is applying his gifts as a writer um, to these monologues that he does and unfortunately i mean with all due respect they're just bat <laughs> crazy and kind of you know in a way sort of unpatriotic because he's really trying to juice up um you know kind of um bad feeling about the about the polity itself about the whole american uh Experiment if you, if I can be that pompous. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, it's still, you know, it, to to see the guy pull off the act, uh, you know, he's so smart and so talented is kind of amusing sometimes. But I can do it maybe once or twice a week. Um, and then, you know, it's back to Miss Marple reruns. So I like, you know, and I, I'm
0: pained about where Tucker's going on all of this. But, um and I agree with you that he's good at it. And which thought, on the one hand makes it more compelling. On the other hand, it makes it less forgivable because he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to say, sometimes you just have to sit back and marvel um, at some of the takes. And so uh, apparently Tucker last night, recording this on Thursday, his, his major takeaway from Trump's interview with Woodward is that it's Lindsey Graham's fault. (laughs) And I have no sympathy for Lindsey Graham, uh, but apparently Lindsey Graham brokered these things, uh, you know, brokered the introduction to do the Woodward thing, and Tucker's got a source that says so. I'm sure Tucker's right. And fine, throw Lindsey under the bus for all I care. It's not like he doesn't have it coming, you know, but there is something just... Amazing to me about how, a, you know, Donald Trump ran in a one, at least according to certain, you know, very online right wingers because of his courage and his ability to take on the media and fight back against the media. And, and then Trump completely butters talking to a guy who has already burned him once <laughs> um, and Gives an answer that an intern could do better um about the pandemic, and the response is okay. Well, then it must be Lindsey Graham's
1: fault. That is that, yes, and, and not only that, he he twisted the president's arm eighteen times. You know, that's really what's. You'd think that Trump would have figured it out, like around time number twelve or thirteen. Lindsey, I don't think I should be doing this. It's, it's amazing. It's just. Um, everybody's going crazy um well you haven't and i am grateful for it and um grateful I don't to know. You. you haven't you haven't seen me wandering around my house talking to my cat I, i've been living <laughs> alone for this pandemic has been going on in my head for several years i think <laughs> so. Well,
0: that, so that's the question it's like I, I i mean i joke about it but it's kind of true i kind of feel like I've been training all of my life for this pandemic (laughs) because between my misanthropy and like my, um, my general tendency towards social distancing and my germophobia. And like for years I've been smoking cigars in my car while I write my column and everyone thought I was a freak. And now it looks like I'm this incredibly (laughs) responsible social distancer. Um, You kind of have some, some of the similar, yeah, thing. I
1: do. When when all this started, I wrote a piece for the Atlantic about introverts. It was springtime for introverts or something like that. Oh, and right. how This yeah, was yeah. going to be, you know, our time had come around at last and now everybody was going to have to uh, follow our lead because we, we were experienced at it. We knew how to do it and everything. And that, that was true for a while. I mean, like a lot of things in this, in the pandemic, I mean, it was in the lockdown, it was a lot of things were true for a while, like you know, it was fun to watch old movies for a while, and yeah. you know, uh, rediscover old books that you hadn't seen. Uh, actually, it was just for a while, and now the while is over. And I've discovered that my my kind of misanthropy and my introversion is I, I'm worried that um, it's it's kind of curdling into weirdness. Like when I do venture out into the world, um, I end up cracking jokes that aren't terribly funny to the clerks at the Harris theater, you know, (laughs) and, and I go out and I get my paper in the morning, you know, and I see people kind of going around and they go, Oh, there's that, there's that elderly gentleman who lives alone with his cat, you know, (laughs) and (laughs) reads the wall street journal obsessively. And, you know, so I, so, you know, all good things can be taken too far. And I think the, the, uh, inversion or the introversion part has, has run its course for me. I, 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 I'm really in a hurry for real life to return.
0: I am too. I agree. One piece of advice is, uh, if you haven't done it, go on a road trip, just oh, actually yeah. just changing your scenery. It does a lot to sort of fix excellent advice. Some of the stuff that's broken, you know, and just,
1: well, my worry is, you know, I'll drive out and I'll, I'll get as far as Cincinnati and, and then I'll get COVID. You know, <laughs> and I'm going to be stuck in a Motel Six, uh, you know, outside of Louisville. And I, you know, um, it's it's sort of that great line from um, Philip Larkin, you know, who's notoriously a, a stay-at-home homebody. And the interviewer said, "Wouldn't you like at least to, to go to China?" And he'd say, "I would love to see China if I could be home in time for dinner." <laughs> and that's sort of the way I feel about road trips right now. I'd love to take a road trip out to like New Mexico. If only I could be back in time to feed the cat and <laughs> have dinner at home. All
0: right, my friend. Well, that's your phone. no oh, thank you I'm so sorry. much. <laughs> that's all right. Um, thank you so much for doing this. hope to have you back. And, um you know, uh, there were some things I want to talk about, but I completely forgot about them about hippies and whatnot. And we'll just do that another time. Um, Happy to do it anytime. All right, my friend. Thanks very much.
1: Great to talk to you.
0: Okay, so Andy has left the, uh, the Zoom. Um, and uh, one question I really wanted to ask him is whether or not he has had that uh, Mark Twain mustache and hair since he was young, because I've known Andy for 25 years and he's always had it. Um, and I'm just like, was he born that way? Anyway, that'll have to come another time. Um, thanks everybody for, uh, all your support. Please try that 30 day trial. If you haven't, um, already, it'd be great for us. We hope it'll be great for you. We hope that some, you know, some fraction of of the people who do it say 95, a hundred percent, um, are eager to hold on to the dispatch after they've gotten a taste of its full majesty. And it's going to be constantly improving and getting better. We've got a lot of ambitious plans for the future, um, and your support means the world to us. I have recently been looking at some of the uh, comments on the iTunes uh, reviews, and um, some of them are a little on the dyspeptic side. Uh, I I take the ones that I think are in good faith to heart, and I will try to be better, um, though I suspect that today's episode will not please some of those people. Um, But if you can give us a positive review at all those places, that's great. If you can uh, recommend to others to sign up and subscribe to uh, this podcast or any of our others, that would be great. Uh, if you have something nice to say about us on Twitter, the Twitter handle is at Jonah remnant and we tend to retweet the positive stuff. I know people think that it's crass and that we should be retweeting the negative stuff. And all I can say to that is that's a really dumb idea. Um, But your feedback and your support means the world to me. And now I got to go. I'm sorry Andy hung up before he could say, no, you won't, this is a podcast. So uh, we'll have to figure something else out. And um, be good, be strong, behave.